0: Hey hey everyone, back again. Today I'm going to talk about Giorgio Agamben's idea or notion of homo sacer. Now before jumping into that, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy, or on Twitter at David Guineau. If you're new here, welcome. I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts and ideas in a way that makes them accessible to help you along your uh, philosophical journey. So if you're new, make sure to subscribe. I'd love to see you back. Uh, if you want to help me out, you can do that by simply subscribing, liking, sharing, telling your friends, commenting, all that stuff. we got to pump that algorithm a little bit. If you're listening to this in podcast form, you'll be able to find the video on YouTube. If you found this on YouTube, you'll be able to find this in podcast form, anywhere where you get podcasts where there shouldn't be any ads, uh, at least for now. If you are listening to this in podcast form, perhaps on Apple Podcasts, leave a review. Five stars would uh, help me out a lot. And yeah oh, you can help me out via Patreon or PayPal if you want to, but obviously no pressure. And I don't want to waste any more of your time with that stuff. Let's talk about homo Saker, which is a complicated term and I want to be quite upfront. I'm not going to be able to discuss every single part of this, especially the history of the term that, that Agamben is drawing from. You really have to read the entire book, homo sacer or Saker, whatever, for, for that. I'm just going to give you kind of a bare bones understanding of it to to get your... Feed off the ground essentially and open up some possible criticisms I have of it and some of the ways that it informs perhaps Foucaultian notions of biopolitics or works against them to some extent as well so let's let's jump into it now at the core of the term homo sacer is a kind of ambivalence and the reason that there's an ambivalence is because sacer Quite literally can refer to sacred, and when we think of sacred, we probably think someone who's exalted, maybe they're held in high esteem. But the tradition and the language, etymologically, that Agamben is drawing from actually paints the notion of sacredness, or sacred in this way, in a kind of negative light as well, where someone who was considered to be sacred, or sacred was someone that could also be seen as being like dirty. Like, someone you weren't supposed to come in contact with. Someone that could actually be, like, ostracized from the political order. Now, the reason he's digging into this this question of sacredness is because, and he's really speaking to uh, Walter Benjamin here, and the kind of question that Walter Benjamin opens about uh, the sacredness of life in relation to divine law and what divine law would, might mean, and I've done an episode on uh, Benjamin's text, The Critique of Violence, which you can find and and check out on here if you want. But Agamben is really curious about this because there's been a kind of naive assumption that sacredness is referring to something that is held in, in high esteem, something that is seen as being something to protect. Now, Agamben shows, because it is also associated with this kind of notion of being dirty, this image of dirtiness, that they are someone who has to be excluded. Now that serves a very instrumental function for Agamben in constituting a political order, but we're gonna we're gonna get there in a minute. We're gonna, we're gonna build here and arrive to that point, but that is essentially the end goal that Agamben wants to arrive at. So Homo sacer is a person, is a human, who is both beneath the law and outside of the law. That is, they are someone whose life can't be used to protitiate, which is a fancy word for saying that cannot feed or cannot be sacrificed, is someone whose life can't mean anything really for those people in authority, for the dominant social order. So for example, they are so beneath life, they're so beneath citizenship, let's say, especially as we're referring to this in relation to the Roman Tradition that he's really uh, picking up on here and the Greeks as well Homo sacre is someone who's beneath citizenship and so their life means nothing in terms of a sacrificial order so you cannot Sacrifice a homo sacre with the hope of getting something from the gods like have your crops grow or something like that They are seen as being less than that at the same time They are also someone whose life means nothing even if they're killed so if you were to kill one of these people, or if they were, they were to be killed, what that would mean was that nothing would befall you because it was like you weren't even killing a human. So their lives couldn't be sacrificed to the gods, and their lives meant like nothing within the political order. Which is very strange, considering our, perhaps, immediate understanding of what a sacred person is. But historically, as Agamben shows, they are someone whose life could neither be used to propitiate the gods, nor could be seen as being something worth defending or punishing if, if they were to be uh, killed by someone else. So the person who killed them couldn't be punished. Now, the emergence of this kind of figure, this person that can be killed with impunity, essentially, where nothing bad will happen, can only come about in a certain phase, or a certain stage, a certain kind of uh, mode of social organization, one that Agamben attributes specifically to the emergence of sovereign power, because it is the sovereign who has the capacity to kill without that killing being in the service of anything so-called meaningful in terms of uh, a sacrificial order, or the killing being something that could then be, uh, retribution can be paid for it in the form of Disciplinary measures or whatever. So the sovereign is the person who is given the potential given the I guess authority to kill Without committing homicide and to in that same act of killing do it without it meaning anything in a sacrificial way Because in the case of like a sacrifice that person would hardly the executioner would hardly be someone considered To have committed a homicide because it is part of that social order as being something that is approved allowed for now in this phase, because, or this, this kind of mode of social organization, in this social sphere, people are viewed as being less than, these, these specific people are viewed as being less than, worthy to sacrifice, and so, they can be killed with impunity. Now, at this point, they are reduced to what it, Agamben calls, and what he draws from etymologically, they are reduced to a kind of bare life, where all they are is a living being, And because they are only a living being, they're just flesh, essentially, they don't actually have any real meaning. And so they can be killed with absolutely no consequence. And so even though something, a person, is held as being sacred, and we know now that that sacredness is not something to really be excited about, It serves a pretty instrumental function in that it is a necessary part of the establishment of sovereign power so in that sense it is kind of sacred it's a necessary component and something we must strive for if we want to establish this kind of social organization which is obviously not a great one but these people are held in a kind of strange inverse exaltation where they are seen as being a necessary component of this system precisely because they can be taken out of that system via killing without any kind of repercussions. Now, this is how Agamben establishes his own form of biopolitics where people are reduced to a kind of life only, and it is in that moment that they can then be killed without any kind of repercussions occurring. Now, this is both similar and different from the kind of biopolitics we get in Foucault, because Foucault doesn't pay quite as much attention to this possibility of death coming from this focus on life. In fact, he considers more about what the proliferation of life means in terms of power, whereas Agamben is saying this proliferation of life, this acknowledgement of things as life, has pretty negative consequences because then it strips people of anything beyond their flesh because it strips them of anything beyond their zoe being the term he he draws upon here anything other than their just their lifeness they don't have any kind of uh, meaning beyond that and that's a very scary moment because it reduces people to that just their biology which houses no meaning in itself now he uses the example of the holocaust to also illustrate this where the jewish people among other people Uh, at the time were reduced to this kind of bare life they had their their rights taken citizenship taken everything like that and reduced to only life and he calls this a form of biopolitics in that way and he says that obviously opened the door for this thing called the holocaust for that that event that is very still still very much um, unimaginable that yet that still occurred now There's an issue that I have with this, uh, just to give my own input, in that he reduces the Holocaust to like a kind of teleological inevitability to this thing called sovereign power and bare life. And while that may be true in that we have certainly set the conditions for these types of events to occur, and they have occurred all across the world in terms of, as a result of, this kind of sovereign power that he sketches, I think that he is too quick not to see the specificity of an event like the Holocaust as representing something more than just a kind of teleological consequence of this form of sovereign power, in that there were so many other historical situations that played a part. Like the, you know, historical treatment of Jewish people certainly contributed to this. It wasn't just any people, and we can't lose sight of that fact. Like the treatment of the Jewish people all throughout the world for thousands of years contributed to this as well. This is not just the demonstration of a kind of sovereign power that did this, because it could. It was a sovereign power that also had these other baked-in prejudices, and I think that Agamben downplays that to some extent. And that is really it. <laughs> there's, you know, to give you kind of basic introduction, there's not really much more to add than that, um, but of course you get a lot more if you actually read the text. But yeah, if anyone, you know, you listen this far, I'd love to hear what anyone else had to say, what you think might be worth adding. If anyone puts a comment in, that's, that's really good. Uh, I'd love to pinning them, you know, so that everyone can see anything that should be added. Or if I mischaracterized anything, I'd love to hear about it. But um, yeah, if you like what I did here, leave five stars, like, share, you know, review, and uh, catch you next time. Take care.